Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. Uh, one of the things about pre preaching on a Thursday morning at the Holiness Conference is that all through the week the standard of holiness is, is, is rising. So you get to the Thursday morning uh, slot and you know you really feel like you're up against it. What did you think of Pastor Hearth's session last, yesterday? Wasn't it dreadful? <laughs> I mean, he said dreadful things. I mean, somebody sort of censored his notes before he got up to preach. I mean, there's a bunch of pastors here, and he made like the pastors could be the problem in the churches. <laughs> Did you catch that? That, that he made, and we have to face our people on Sunday morning, and uh, he, told, uh, he told them all that we might be irritated with them at some times. <laughs> um, <clears throat> It got worse, though. Last night, sat with him last night in the, in the fellowship hall, and we were talking uh, back and forth, and he was graphically describing how a husband should apologize, ask forgiveness of his wife. And it was very good stuff. The only problem is my wife was sitting beside me at the time. <laughs> and she was taking notes. I think it was for somebody in the church that might need it. <laughs> uh, but we have heard some good preaching. We have been blessed and stirred and nailed to the floor and skin. But you know what? We need it. God is good to us, uh, and may God take and God use us. We're going to look at the <clears throat> issue of assurance of salvation this morning, the issue of lordship salvation. And, and, and let me say this to you. For, for most of my ministry uh, in Ireland, I have had the blessing of being immune from many of the controversies that you deal with. It's been wonderful. We don't have Christian radio in Ireland, and uh, typically, uh, whatever our churches get comes from uh, the pastors. But you know, <clears throat> the internet has changed all that. And there are issues alive in our churches today that really 10, 15 years ago we wouldn't have had to deal with. And lordship salvation has become a huge issue in Ireland. Uh, it's an issue that's affect it's affecting the cause of Christ enormously in our country. Uh, we're, we're just in the place where we're beginning to see churches established. And what we're dealing with is an issue that's going to put a completely different spin on the gospel and that's going to do tremendous damage. And it's getting into the warp and woof of our people's minds and thinking. Uh, much of it's through the internet. But you know what I found as I studied the issue? I was amazed at how much I had been affected by it. I was amazed at how many subtle deceptions had gone into my thinking as far as Lordship of Salvation is concerned. And you know what? It's, it, it, it's dangerous stuff. And it's stuff that we need to take a strong stand against. And if we don't take a strong stand against, we will lose the glorious gospel that we're talking about. In fact, I think we'll lose the glory of the glorious gospel. It's what we'll lose if we, if we don't. So we need to take and look at this issue. Now, there's no way this morning that I'm going to be able to cover everything that uh, you need. Uh, <clears throat> but this is a subject that each one of us needs to delve into for ourselves. Because we don't just need to check the box. That's not what I believe. We need to go deep with it and understand what we do believe. Because this is the heart of the gospel that you declare to people. This is the heart of what you're going out from this place all fired up, ready to, to deliver to people. And if we don't have the heart of it, right, if we don't have our thinking straight as far as the gospel is concerned, uh, we'll go out with the wrong message. And we will get discouraged. And our churches will get discouraged. And there will be all kinds of problems and issues uh, involved in it. This is a key issue for us in our day and age, and we need to grapple with it. This morning, obviously, we need to grapple with it in depth uh, <clears throat> as individuals, and we need to be very solid on this, and we need to stand for it. If you don't stand against it, you're going to get affected by it. That's just the way it is. All right, that's a word of prayer, and we'll begin to look to the Scripture. Father in heaven, we do thank you 
for this day. Thank you, Lord, for this conference, for the work you've done in hearts and lives during this week, Lord, for, for all that you've brought to us by way of conviction, by way of encouragement, Lord, by way of understanding. And Lord, we do ask that you'd help us now today, Lord. Lord, we're not able, we're not sufficient for the need of the hour. And Lord, we look to you, we depend upon you now, Lord, to do a work in these next hours, Lord, that's going to bring uh, to a culmination all that you've started doing, and Lord, that's going to send us out with a heart and a passion to deliver your word in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We're going to start with Ephesians chapter 2, 7, 8, and 9, and we're going to close with that as well. Um, <clears throat> Ephesians 2, verse 7. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. You know, God is going to show his exceeding riches through the gospel. Now, all, all the rest that God has done, the creation and everything else that God has uh, <clears throat> done that's manifested his glory, this is the culmination of it. This is the pinnacle of it. The gospel is the pinnacle of it. This is important stuff for us. Uh, <clears throat> verse 8. For by grace ye are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. There's no element of works involved in it. Romans 11 verse 6 there says uh, in your notes, and if by grace, then it is no more of works, otherwise grace is no more grace, but if it be of works, then it is no more grace, otherwise uh, works is no, work is no more work, right? It can't be both. It can't be by works and it can't be by grace. It's got to be one or the other. And really, you, know, you can't stand in the middle ground as far as lordship salvation is concerned. You're going to have to choose where you stand. You're going to have to stand on one side or the other of it. Uh, because it's either going to be works or it's only, uh, going to be grace. It can't be a mixture of the two. It can't be a split trust. It's got to be either one or the other. And you know, you, you have good friends perhaps, and <clears throat> there are good people out there on both sides of this issue. But you have good friends that are on the, the, the wrong side of it. And you may be confused in your own thinking as far as it's concerned, but you've got to get unconfused. You've got to get to the place where you get this thought sorted in your mind. Um, the glory of the gospel is the fact that it's free. It's the most expensive, valuable, inestimable, and valuable, valuable thing that, that, that could ever be, and yet it's free. It's totally free. There's no charge. There's nothing of works involved in it at all. And you've got to take that and stand on that very clearly. Um, what is Lordship Salvation? That's your first number one there. <clears throat> Jesus cannot be Savior without being Lord. Lordship Salvation is thus the belief in the, that the possibility of salvation involved the acceptance of Jesus Christ not only as Savior, but also submission and obedience to Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, let me start off and we'll clear up some confusion before we start. We're not arguing against the lordship of Jesus Christ. We want the lordship of Jesus Christ. The answer to the problems in our churches is the lordship of Jesus Christ. You know, we're not arguing in any way against that. We want the lordship of Jesus Christ. But when we take the lordship of Jesus Christ and front load it on the gospel, we have a problem with that. We have a problem when you put it there as part of the gospel that somebody's supposed to make Jesus Lord before they can be saved. <clears throat> it's impossible. It really is impossible. Um, but, but that's what we're dealing with in Lordship Salvation. Now, now let me say this to you too. People that advocate Lordship Salvation uh, are not <coughs> oblivious to the idea of works. Uh, they know works is an issue. So what happens is they end up 
uh, putting things in certain words to try and take the works aspect out of it so it doesn't look like works. John MacArthur, for instance, has revised and revised and revised his book, uh, <clears throat> The Gospel According to Jesus Christ. He's revised it and revised it to try and get the problems out of it. To try and move. By the way, isn't, isn't that a wonderful title? Um, <clears throat> the Gospel According to Jesus? Doesn't that just lend such wonderful <clears throat> authority to, to, to what he's doing? And yet in that, what he's doing is he's advocating his position of lordship salvation. So we need to understand that we're going to deal with confusing terms when it comes to this. That you're going to have to think. That you're not going to be able to just say, no, no, no. Uh, <clears throat> listen to somebody when they say, no, 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 I don't believe that. That you're going to have to find out what exactly they do believe. What exactly they are teaching. What exactly is really going on. Because it's a major issue for us. Uh, I am indebted to Lou Martuniak in, in his book, In Defense of the Gospel. He's been a tremendous help. I would recommend it to anybody to read. It's a tremendously helpful book. Uh, he thinks it through, and he helps you with the passages, the difficult passages. Uh, <clears throat> he has been a tremendous help as far as that's concerned. Right? <clears throat> but we need to understand that we're dealing with an issue, and the people who are promoting Lordship Salvation know it's an issue. And they're going to try and make like works are not involved in it. You're going to have to work it out for yourself, right? Um, Martiniak gives a one page. He takes from John MacArthur's The Gospel of According to Jesus, and he gives you a one-page um, definition, I suppose, of what lordship salvation is. And I'm not going to read it all to you right uh, there. Um, let's skip down to the bottom of the page there. He says, Dr. MacArthur views the carnality that James addresses, and we're going to read that passage in a second. He, he reviews the carnality that James addresses as though it proves these brethren were never saved in the first place. He views them as sinners, unregenerate, uh, in desperate need of God's saving grace. MacArthur's answer to the problem is that they need to be born again. He goes on to delineate what he believes are the ten imperatives for the reception of eternal life. Now, did you know there were ten imperatives for the reception of eternal life? Aren't you glad nobody told you that before you got saved? I'm definitely glad nobody told me that before you got saved. Can you imagine the Philippian jailer when, if, if, when, when he asked, what must I do to be saved, if, if Paul had said to him, oh, listen, here's the ten imperatives. I mean, that's ridiculous. Totally ridiculous. The passage is taken out of, um, out of context altogether. Let, let me give you some of my testimonies, because I'll use my testimony uh, as an illustration. I had the, the benefit for this issue of being saved when I was 26, so I can remember the thought process. Some of you were saved when you were young. Praise God for it. And you don't remember as clearly the thought process of when you got saved. Right? But at 26 years old, uh, <clears throat> missionary Bob Zemeski presented the gospel to me. And he came several nights and presented the gospel to me. Fourth night, I think it was, he presented the gospel to me. And each night, I was too good to need it. Right? We would come to the place where I was a sinner in need of salvation or I was going to go to hell. And I didn't need it. I was a good guy. My life was going okay. Things were going well in my life. And I wasn't particularly desperate about anything. And as far as I was concerned, I wasn't a bad sinner. There were other people who were bad sinners, and they might need this stuff, but I didn't. My wife had just gotten saved, <laughs> and um, she was definitely bringing pressure. And, and I, I wasn't, you know, against church. I thought it might be a good thing for my family to go to church. Right? <clears throat> but he came, and he, he brought the gospel to me. One night, he left me some photocopied sheets, just questions and answers about um, <clears throat> salvation. Uh, came to a section, I, I, reading through it, came to a section on the commandments. And in my self-righteousness, uh, I'm going down through this list, and it's stating the commandment and asking you, have you ever broken it? And I'm going, no, 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 no. And it came to, thou shalt not bear false witness. 
And the question was, have you ever told a lie? Well, I was in business, right? And as far as I was concerned, <laughs> sometimes you had to tell a lie. I think I'd done it that day. You know, I was late with an order and I'd phoned somebody up and just told them a little white lie, you know. And I'm going, but that, that doesn't make me so bad that I'm going to hell. Well, the Spirit of God thought differently. And the Spirit of God wasn't letting me away with my little white lie. And he began to nail me on it. And you know, when he began to work, he didn't stop with lies. Before long, I could see a whole lot in my righteous life that wasn't so righteous. And you know what I did? I knew for the first time that Jesus had died for my sins. I'd always known. I was raised in a Catholic country. I was raised in Catholic schools. I'd always known that Jesus died for the sins of the world. That was not news to me. But I had never before realized that my sin was what put him on the cross. I, when I understood that my sin had put him on the cross, then I knew that if I rejected what he was saying, he would indeed send me to hell because the gospel had been preached to me. I'd heard that part of it. I knew. I knew he would have no option but to send me to hell. And so right there at that moment, <clears throat> I knelt beside my bed and I asked him to save me. Amen. And he did. <laughs> yeah, listen, I've never had to do it again. I've never doubted it, but he did. He did exactly what he said he would do. He saved me, and, <clears throat> and since then... Now, uh, listen, there was, there, there was no tears. There was no dramatic sense of conviction. Obviously, what I'm describing to you is conviction, but it wasn't this dramatic, you know, <clears throat> dying... Uh, <clears throat> no, listen, I just understood I was a sinner. I understood that Jesus had died for my sins. That's repentance, and I believed on him. And as simple as that, I was saved, I was born again, and my life was changed. That's what the, how simple the gospel is. Nobody told me there were ten imperatives. I'm so glad. <laughs> Nobody told me anything of what was going to happen to me after I got saved. I did understand that, you know, once I got saved, things would change because... Uh, my life was going to be different, but nobody told me I was going to have to commit myself to anything or I was going to have to uh, do certain things. The Holy Spirit began to tell me that after I was saved. He began to show me what I needed to do. That's discipleship. That began to happen after that. Uh, <clears throat> but the idea of ten imperatives. Now, now, now let's look at these ten imperatives, right? Um, <clears throat> we're actually reading the passage James 4, 7 through 10, right? <clears throat> This is a quote from MacArthur's book, right? He says, Submit yourself to God, that's salvation. Resist the devil, that's transferring allegiance. Draw near to God, that's intimacy of relationship. Cleanse your hands, repentance. Purify your hearts, confession. Be miserable, mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned to gloom, sorrow. And the final imperative summarizes the mentality of those who are converted. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. Now, <clears throat> Listen, that would preach very well to a room like this, where we're believers and we're following God and we want to follow Him. Listen, those things will preach well, but you can't preach those things to an unbeliever. That's not their issue. That's not their problem. Their problem is they need to get saved. They're not going to understand any of this stuff until they get saved. They're not going to be able to do any of it until they come to the point of salvation. And you say, well, then why are people preaching? Well, here's the reality of why Lordship Salvation is becoming such a big issue. Because carnality is such a big issue in our churches. And listen, that's a problem. Right? Listen, isn't that why we're here this week? You know, listen, don't we want to get the carnality out of ourselves and get the carnality out of our churches? Don't we want to be a holy people, the holy people that God expects us and wants us to be? 
But the problem is, how are you going to go about bringing holiness? Well, what we're saying this week is, listen, it's the gospel to the sinner and the gospel to the saints. Listen, if you want to be holy, what you do is depend upon the Holy Spirit. Uh, you walk with him and let him change you and make you holy revival. That's one option. Another option is what you do is you front load the gospel and you make people commit to being holy before they start so that by the time they get to sitting in the pews, they're already committed to being holy. The problem with it is not real holiness, and the other problem with it is it's unachievable, and the reality is it's a total perversion of the gospel. But we understand the heart that wants holiness in the pews, because that's what we want too. But we've got to be very careful how we go, go about it. Really, it's either revival or it's the law that you put on people, and the law's not going to work. There really aren't two options. You know, there aren't, you, know, you can't pick and choose which kind of a conference you're going to go to. There really are two choices. Either, you're going to, either it's going to be revival or it's going to be the law. And what we need is we need revival. All right? Uh, Lordship salvation requires, we're on page 119. The Lordship salvation requires a commitment to full discipleship before salvation. In essence, the requirement of salvation and discipleship are amalgamated with the intention of producing Christians who have surrendered themselves to Christ and forsaken the world from the beginning of their Christian lives. And listen, sounds like a great idea. But the heart of the theology is completely wrong. Um, right? Now, what this does then for the Lordship Salvation Advocate is it make, come, brings him to a place rapidly where he's saying, well, listen, carnal Christianity can't exist. Either they're saved or they're not saved. Either they've made Jesus Lord of their life and they're living in true holiness or they're not saved. And, and that's what lordship does. So, so when you look at the congregation uh, through a lordship paradigm, what you're doing is you're looking and you're saying, okay, the people that are clearly walking with God, by the way, it's based upon performance. Right? The people who are performing well Listen, they're definitely saved, and the people who are not performing need to get saved. That is dangerous theology. Listen, I come from Ireland, holy Catholic Ireland. Do you realize there are a lot of people in Ireland that perform very well? There are a lot of people in Ireland that are very religious. There are a lot of people in Ireland that would put Christians to shame in the way they live. They really are. But you know what? They're not saved. They're not born again. Performance is not the issue. Performance is the wrong place to look as far as this is concerned. Now understand, we are looking for holiness. But we're not looking to judge salvation by performance. It's the wrong place to look at it. All right, <clears throat> so Roman numeral two there. Is there such a thing as a carnal believer? <clears throat> well, the Apostle Paul, in writing to the believers at Corinth, addressed as brethren and saints, proceeds to deal with the list of worldly practices that rival anything we see in modern churches. Now, I'm not going to read all of these. They're there in your notes for you. Uh, they have divisions. They have worldly wisdom. He talks about carnality in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1 through 4. Uh, there's immorality, and such immorality as the world knew nothing about, that a man was living with his father's mother. He was living with his stepmother. Right? There's, there are all kinds of issues going on there. Uh, taking each other to court. There's, <clears throat> he talks about fornication. He talks about marriage and divorce and on and on and on. You know, <clears throat> really, as you read through the book of Corinthians, it's the picture of carnality. Everything Paul is hitting in it, listen, it's carnality. Now, Paul does not come in and look at the situation and say, oh, I got it wrong. They're not saved. 
I need to preach the gospel again so that they'll get saved. You know, that should end our case. That should end our case right there. He does not come in and look at their performance and judge their salvation based upon their performance. He comes in and he rightly judges these people are not living right and he begins to address the issues and deal with them and tell them, listen, you're children of God, live like it. He begins to deal with them as believers. He does not take and look at the situation and say they're not saved. You know, before I came here, I planted some fruit trees, right? And uh, these were bare root fruit trees. Got them at a tremendous price. I love a bargain. And I got the, these, the, these fruit trees at a tremendous place, price, and I soaked them for 24 hours. And um, I put down some manure, and I put down some compost, and I put back in the soil, and I planted them. And <clears throat> when I go home, one of the first things I'm going to do is I'm going to go down and look at these fruit trees and see how they're doing, right? Just because it's of interest to me. Now, you know what? <clears throat> it's early days yet, but let's say it goes a couple of months. And um, I don't see leaves on these fruit trees. You know what I'd be inclined to do? I'd be inclined to dig them up and look at the roots and see if the roots had really taken. But you know what that would do? Any chance the fruit tree had of growing would be destroyed. It really would. It would just be destroyed. Now, um, what I need to do is I need to leave my fruit trees and let them grow. I had a tree, we dug up some trees at the church, we were uh, taking down a wall and expanding our car park, and we, we dug up some trees, and uh, one of the trees is a very pretty tree, and I really wanted to bring it up home, and it got a bit bashed in the, in the process, but I brought it up home, and I planted it, and you know what, <clears throat> springtime came, nothing. And I looked at it, and I said, you know what, this thing's not growing, and I really wanted to just rip it out of the ground. But something said, no, leave it there. You know what, about midsummer, it started to grow. It got leaves on it. You know what, <clears throat> listen, Paul does not come in and disturb the roots of what he's already planted. He comes in and nurtures it to make it grow. Now, that's a totally different philosophy to the idea of lordship. It's a totally different, listen, it's not just a philosophy, it's a theology that's completely different. And we've got to be careful that what's happening in our churches is not that the roots are being disturbed. You know, our church in, in, in Lifegate in, in Dublin, I've seen some roots disturbed. I'm bothered. I think I'm probably annoyed. <laughs> uh, but maybe I'm annoyed in the right sense on this one. <clears throat> because I've seen the roots disturbed and I've seen plants that were planted and are going to do fine if they're left being disturbed because somebody wanted to check out the root system, if it had really happened right, did they believe right? Had they heard the gospel right? Listen, it's dangerous stuff. Yeah, Brother John's going to be with us in January. Now, Brother John's a tree expert by now. You see, he lives in Michigan, and he's got all these trees around his house, and I'm sure you've planted loads of things. Maryland's had you planted loads of things since you got there. He's a tree expert. Well, say he comes to my house in January, and he goes down, and he looks at my fruit trees, and, man, there's no leaves on his fruit trees. <clears throat> Obviously, O'Gorman does not know how to plant trees. <laughs> right? And so he goes and he gets himself a spade and he gets himself a pickaxe and, and he digs it up and he does the job right because he's an expert. And he comes in and he says, well, listen, I replanted all your trees. Am I going to be happy? <laughs> I'm not going to be happy. They didn't need replanting. It's January. Just leave them alone. They'll grow fine. 
You know what we do, though, with this issue? The expert comes in, the evangelist. The expert comes in, and the, and the evangelist knows better. And listen, we know. Listen, we as pastors, we know. Listen, the, the plants are doing fine. You know, they, they got their problems. They got their issues. Oftentimes, we know what the problem and the issue is, but the, the expert comes in, and he replants them. And he destroys them. He absolutely ruins them. And because he's an expert, you as a pastor back off and let him do it. Listen, that's not supposed to be. You're the shepherd of the flock. You don't want anybody replanting your trees. You don't want anybody coming in and upsetting the gospel. And you see, Paul came in, his church plant, his work, and he looked at it and he said, oh, these people are not doing right. And he began to show them how to do right and demand of them that they do right and expect of them as believers that they do right. But it's a completely different paradigm than the one where you tear it all up and start again. You say, well, listen, what's wrong with starting again? Well, in the issue of the fruit trees, what you've done is you've disturbed the root system that was beginning to grow. Do you know that when you uproot the believer that's not growing the way you want them to grow, you disturb their faith? You don't actually help them. You say, what can be wrong with somebody making a second decision to trust Christ as their Savior? A lot. They needed to trust Christ the first time, and then they needed to grow. But when you take and you shake the roots up again, and you, 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 you disturb, you ruin their faith. You know, we had a young couple. Um, they actually weren't a couple in our, in our church, but there was, there was a young man and a young lady, and they both got saved in our church. I'm not, I can't remember who led the young man to the Lord, but the young lady I led to the Lord. And she did very well. At first, she listened, she did really well. <clears throat> well, time went on, and she left our church, a series of events, and she went somewhere else. And ultimately, uh, these two got together, and they got married, and, <clears throat> and they were in another church. And, and one day, I get a prayer letter from a missionary. <clears throat> and in the prayer letter, the missionary is talking about this young couple that just got saved in his church. And I knew who he was talking about. And he's saying in the prayer letter, you know, that it's terrible that even in our good churches, sometimes the gospel isn't preached correctly. Well, now, that annoyed me too, all right? <laughs> that bothered me, right? Uh, not just from the perspective of pride, because I knew for definite this girl was saved, and I was pretty sure the guy was saved too. <clears throat> well, you know what, today? Today that couple have split up and neither of them want to know anything about God. You know, is it because they were never saved? No. It's because their faith got disturbed. It's because their faith got ruined. Listen, they didn't need to get saved again. They needed to get right with God. They needed to walk with God. You see, this issue is huge. Look, we've got to look at carnality, and like Paul does call it carnality. Paul says... <clears throat> In 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1, uh, he says, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. Look, carnality is a reality. It's a believer who is truly a believer, but who acts like an unbeliever. In some senses, or maybe in a lot of senses. Right? <clears throat> um, we have examples of it in the Old Testament. Now, listen, Abraham was a righteous man. The New Testament tells us he was a righteous man. Abraham believed God and was counted unto him for righteousness. Right? There's no issue there. You know, listen, was Abraham righteous when he was lying about Sarah? He does in Genesis 12, and he does again in Genesis 20. Was he righteous? The answer actually is, yes, he was righteous. But he was doing unrighteously. He was being carnal. 
Right? What about Lot? You know, Lot's an interesting character. If it were not for uh, Second Peter, we would never know that Lot was a believer. You know, we, we really wouldn't. We would just write him off. We would say, you know, listen, he was a dud. <laughs> you know, how could, how could someone walk with Uncle Abraham, you know, and see all that he saw with Uncle Abraham and still be such a dud? <clears throat> you know, I mean, he pitched his tent towards Sodom. He went and lived in Sodom. He became one of the people that sat in the gate of Sodom. I mean, listen, uh, and Sodom was a place so wicked that God actually came to destroy it himself. You know, listen, that, that was a pretty bad place. But 2 Peter 2, verse 6 through 8 says, And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly, and delivered just Lot from the filthy conversation of, that wicked, of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling amongst them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Listen, <clears throat> Lot was a righteous man. He was just carnal. That's what he was. He was carnal. By the way, there's an awful price tag on carnality. And if you, want, if you want a picture of the price of carnality in somebody's life, just follow Lot's life through. And listen, there's an awful price tag on carnality. God wants us to be righteous. God wants us to live his way. But we need to understand that believers can be carnal. Performance does not necessarily denote the need of salvation. It doesn't do it, right? Uh, King David, the man after God's own heart, was carnal for at least a year. Listen, he's the man after God's own heart. He's, he's the benchmark for kings. But he was carnal for at least a year. Peter denied the Lord, and even, even after being filled with the Spirit, bowed to the Judaizers before Paul, uh, Paul confronted him. Look, <clears throat> believers can be carnal. Listen, that's just reality, staring us in the face. Paul recognizes it. We need to recognize it too. Any attempt that would say we can't have such a thing as a carnal believer uh, is just flying in the face of reality. That's what it's doing. It, 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 it's unreasonable. It's impossible, right? Um, but we have misguided brethren that would want to tell us, listen, there's no such thing as a carnal believer. And they would want to get them saved again. And that's dangerous. You know, all of us can look around at people in our lives and we say, you know what? He's not there. She's, she's just not there. You know, and you know, really, you don't know where they're at. You know, somebody says to you, well, did, did the person you just, you just led to the Lord get, really get saved? The honest answer is, I don't know. That's between them and God. I delivered the gospel. They received the gospel. As far as I'm concerned, as far as I can see, they got saved. But I don't know. That, <clears throat> I'm not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit knows the answer to that one. Uh, Leighton Kelly, uh, he's our RU director, runs, runs our, <clears throat> our addictions ministry. Leighton Kelly had an interesting testimony. Leighton got saved when he was 12 and came to church, got baptized, joined the church, um, <clears throat> was, was, was active in church as a kid, he got saved in a, in a youth program, and then he just faded off the radar completely. We couldn't find him. We went down and knocked on his house. Uh, he wasn't there. We found out later he was hiding from us. He didn't want to see us. And um, so, so Leighton just faded off the radar. And <clears throat> Leighton became an addict. He became a heroin addict. Now, the life of a, an addict is not a holy life. You know, it's, it's, it's an awful life. Yeah, it's a wicked life. You know, and you say, well, listen, if he was in that kind of a lifestyle, how could he, how could he have been saved? Leighton was saved, and he knew he was saved. 
Layton would pass by our church and he would bury his head. Shame. Because he knew his life did not match up to who he was. You know, in 2000, when the Spirit of God fell, uh, three days later, Layton stumbled in uh, the doors of the church as high as a kite and he wanted to be a pastor. <clears throat> Listen, I mean, I didn't have that much faith, all right? I'm looking at this kid and I'm thinking, you what? <laughs> Leighton left his bag of drugs behind him. And listen, there was, there was a considerable amount of drugs. And I, not knowing what I was dealing with, took his drugs home to his house for him. But you know what? <clears throat> Leighton started coming back to church. Leighton <laughs> started coming back to church. He did not need to get saved. He needed to get right with God. You know he's never gotten saved again? He never needed to. Now listen... By his own admission, he lived a wicked life, and he's repented of it and put it behind him. But you know what? He didn't need to get saved again. He was living in carnality. And you know some people like that too. And you know what? <clears throat> like with my trees, it's very easy for you to come to the place where, listen, what you want to do is you want to just, listen, dig them up and see what's happening at the roots. That's not the way to go about it. They don't need to get saved again. They need to get right with God. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> Ray Comfort says this, speaking at Matthew chapter 7, verse 22 and 23. Let's, let's turn to Matthew 7. Reading verse 21, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Right? I mean, let me read you what, what, what Ray Comfort has said. By the way, when it comes to zeal for the gospel and a passion for getting it out there, you won't find many characters like Ray Comfort. Uh, and, and listen, some of the, the, the methods and so on he uses for getting to the gospel, you have to hand it to them. This guy is working at it. But listen to what he says. Uh, these are perhaps the most frightening verses in the Bible. Vast multitudes of professing Christians fit into the category spoken of here. They call Jesus Lord, but they practice lawlessness. They profess faith in Jesus, but they have no regard for the divine law. They tell fibs or white lies, take things that belong to others, have a roaming eye for the opposite sex, etc. They are liars, thieves, and adulterers at heart who will be cast from the gates of heaven into the jaws of hell. Man, that's strong stuff, isn't it? Many will say unto me, Lord, Lord. And you know what? Some of you are saying, um, that's a bit confusing. But they're going to say, Lord, Lord. Look back at the text again here for a second. Look at verse 20, 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. What's the will of our Father which is in heaven? That you believe on his Son. That's the will. Listen, the only people that are going to go to heaven are the people that have believed upon his Son. It's not a performance-based gospel. These people in Matthew chapter 7 never believed upon his Son. That's why they're going to be cast from, not because they told fibs. <clears throat> they're going to go to hell because they didn't believe upon his son. There's only one way to be saved. We need to be so careful that we don't let these verses kind of creep into our thinking 
and knock us off as far as the gospel is concerned. By the way, that's why you need to study it through. You need to go through it. Which is, Paul Washer says this. By the way, Brother Mike Washer is here uh, this morning, and he wants me to tell you that he has no relation whatever to Paul Washer, okay? Okay. <laughs> uh, Paul Washer, by the way, is a fascinating preacher. I, I had a show of hands one day, and I was absolutely crestfallen when I realized how many of my people had listened to Paul Washer. <clears throat> you know, because he's, he's, he's hard-hitting, and he's good, and you know what? It was amazing how many had clicked on the Internet and read Paul Washer. You know, the, 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 there are bad things on the Internet. We need to be careful as far as what our people are listening to. <clears throat> but he said, there is no such thing as a carnal Christian. He says it right out there. There's no such thing as a carnal Christian. What they do is they say carnal Christians, using the term carnal Christians, is an excuse for people who are not really saved being in church. Um, The problem with this kind of teaching is that the carnal believer is confronted not with the need to get right with God, but with the need to get really saved. Now, let me challenge you on this idea of being really saved. Is there such a thing as being really saved? Let's, let's use an analogy. Uh, can we have a person who's really dead and a person who's not so dead? <laughs> Isn't that ridiculous? I mean, if you're dead, you're dead. If you haven't got a pulse and you're not breathing, you're dead. Right? Listen, when you're sa- if you're saved, you're saved. Listen, your performance is not the issue as far as your salvation is concerned. Listen, your, your, you know, your fellowship with God may definitely be at issue based on your performance. But you know what? <clears throat> Your performance is not the issue as far as salvation is concerned. Somebody's saved, they're saved. You see, what we've got to understand is that salvation is a point-in-time change that happens. One moment I was a child of Satan on my way to hell. I asked Jesus Christ to save me, and the next moment I was a child of God on my way to heaven. It, it happens like that. And, and it's, it's a forever deal. You don't go back and forth between it and finally get going. You know what I mean? It happens, point in time, in a moment, somebody gets saved and they never go back from it. It just never changes for them. There is no such thing as really saved and not really saved. It's just saved or unsaved. <clears throat> We'd be careful because you know, the terms actually generate in our minds unbelief. That's what they do. Um, <clears throat> this is dangerous teaching. Um, if a saved person gets saved again to overcome the problem with sin... Uh, he is dealing with the wrong problem. He may find immediate relief for a time, but eventually he will be back in the same place with his faith in the gospel ruined. That's what happens, and that's what's happening in our churches all the time, and it's not doing us any good. And there may be somebody here this morning, and you're really questioning your salvation because somebody dug up the roots, and after they dug up the roots, you may have dug it up several times for yourself to have a look at the roots and see if you really did the business when you got saved. Listen, how hard can it be? You know, listen, what a slight uh, on the goodness and the love of God. Do you honestly think that God is going to refuse you heaven because you didn't get it right when you're repenting? That you didn't actually do it right? That you didn't say the right words? That you weren't feeling the right things? And God, that's, that's absolutely ridiculous. That's a slight on God. Listen, God loves us and sent his son to die for us. And listen, whosoever believeth on him shall be saved. That's, that's just, just the way it is. <clears throat> there's, there's nothing more to it. You know, listen, getting saved is easy. 
<clears throat> you're going to say, people are going to say easy believism. Look, easy believism is the wrong term. I'm really convinced that the, it's the completely wrong term. There's nothing easier than believing. Now, if by easy believism you mean manipulating somebody into making a decision so that they, you can actually count them on your, on your score chart, listen, that's just wicked is what that is. There's nothing about believism there. That's you just hoodwinking. That's you, you know, using the things of darkness to actually um, do something spiritual. It's ridiculous. Right? But when it comes to believing, believing is easy. It really is. I mean, God made it so easy. God made it too easy. You know, so often when you actually come to the gospel with somebody, what they're going to, but that seems too easy. And listen, from a human's perspective, it is too easy because we bring nothing to it, absolutely nothing to it. God brings all to it. You know, some of you will have used the illustration. Um, I've used it many times. Uh, a young Russian peasant was dying, and the doctor came, and he told the mother that <clears throat> the only way that she could be saved is she, was if she could have fresh fruit. Well, it's mid, the middle of winter. There's no fresh fruit around, and this woman doesn't have any money to go and buy it, even if it was there. And so she's looking at the reality that her daughter's going to die. And then she remembers that in the king's palace, there is a greenhouse that's heated, and there are fruits in it all the year round. And longingly, she goes and she stands outside the, uh, the gates of the king's palace, and she's, she, she's, she's looking longingly towards the greenhouse where the fruit that could save the life of her daughter is... There's no way that she can get it. The princess looks out and sees her and is drawn to her and asks her, why are you here? What are you looking at? And so she explains the situation. My daughter's dying. And if she doesn't get fruit, she's going to die. And I just know that there's, there's fruit in there. And the princess's heart is touched. So she goes and she fills a basket full of fruit and she brings it down to this old lady standing at the gate. And as she's passing the basket of fruit out to the old lady, the old lady starts fumbling for the few coppers that she has in her pocket to pull them out and pay for it. And the princess looks at the coppers and she looks at the lady and she says, you couldn't possibly pay for this. You don't have enough money to pay for this. Either you receive it as a gift or you don't receive it at all. Listen, when it comes to salvation, we bring nothing to the table. We come with our broken bits and he does it all. And that's the heart of the problem with Lordship Salvation. We're not bringing anything to Him. We're coming on the basis of mercy. 100% mercy. It's grace. It's nothing to do with us. We have no part in it at all. It's all of Him. <clears throat> right? <clears throat> when we look at carnal believers, we've got to understand, yeah, they have a problem. But the problem is not that they need to get saved and do it right. The problem is not that they need to get saved and promise that they'll do it right in the future. The problem is that they need to get right with their father. And they need to start living his way. <clears throat> All right, what is then repentance, faith, Roman numeral number three? Look, repentance is a crucial issue, particularly in the lordship uh, debate. Uh, and it definitely has a role. Both sides agree uh, that repentance has a role. However, <clears throat> the definition of repentance is subtly changed in lordship so that it is dependent upon change. Repentance is not real unless there is a commitment to change that is followed by real change. 
The practical result of this is that a carnal believer is someone who has never truly repented and is therefore not saved. Right? <clears throat> the traditional definition of repentance uh, makes repentance a change of mind. Now, while it's reasonable and right to expect that a new believer uh, will change after salvation uh, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, salvation can never be based upon performance. Right? Now, you've got to watch yourself on that one. I've got to watch myself on that one. Right? Because what happens is the people that are really saved are the people that are doing the business, the people that are performing. That's not a safe way to judge it. Remember, unrighteous people can do righteous things. Unrighteous people can make it look very good. That's not a safe way to judge salvation. <clears throat> um, so... When it comes to repentance, repentance is a change of mind. We can't hook it onto future performance. And subtly, that's what happens. We hook it onto future performance. Uh, here's an interesting uh, <clears throat> thought. Uh, G. Michael Corcus um, Martunia quotes him. In the Old Testament, the word nakam is used. It means an expression of grief or sorrow. It occurs 46 times in the Old Testament, and 37 of those times it is God that is repenting. Now, listen, did God change his ways because he was bad? No, he didn't. Now, I realize that the Old Testament, we're not looking at exactly the same word, but the thought is interesting uh, to us. You know, look, repentance is a change of mind. It's very simple. You know, we, we, we don't have to extend it beyond that. Um, in the New Testament, the word metanoia is used. It means a change of mind. It needs... It needs to be carefully noted that though a change of mind would be expected to result in action, deeds are the evidence, not the substance of repentance. It is not reasonable to make outward transformation an essential of repentance. You know what? I've done that. Subtly, I've expected the outward performance to actually prove the reality of the salvation. Now, look. If somebody gets saved and the Spirit of God comes in to them, you expect there's going to be change. You expect somebody to start reading their Bible uh, and, and for things to change in their lives. That's, that's normal. That's expected. That's what God wants of them. That's what we want of them. That's what we're going to preach and teach of them. But understand this. That's not part of their salvation. Not at all. <clears throat> um, Vincent says this. And, uh, a word... Let me just read the, 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 from the bottom part there of what Vincent says. Metanoia, repentance, is therefore primarily an afterthought different from the former thought. An interesting way of putting it. He says this, he says, which issues in regret and in a change of, context, of conduct. These latter ideas, however, have been imported into the word by scriptural usage and do not lie in it etymologically nor by primary usage. What's he saying? Listen, it means a change of mind. It's a... It's a, <clears throat> a an afterthought different from the former thought. Let me use my testimony to illustrate it again. You know, listen, I'm going like, I'm righteous, I don't need this. I'm righteous, I don't need this. I'm good enough, I don't need this. God wouldn't send me to hell. The Holy Spirit brings conviction, I'm not righteous. Oh no, I'm not righteous. In fact, I'm so unrighteous that I deserve hell. <clears throat> that, that, that's, listen, that's a change of mind. That's repentance. Now, let me say this too. I'm giving you my salvation testimony. Don't do this. Don't look at your salvation testimony and try and line it up with mine. 
Because the Holy Spirit doesn't work the same in all our lives. Some of the basics are going to be the same. Repentance and belief are going to be the same. But he's going to do it differently in our lives. So don't get, don't get hung up on uh, something I'm saying as far as that is concerned. But repentance is simply the change of mind. I understand now I'm a sinner. I didn't before, but now I do. I understand I'm a sinner. Um, <clears throat> Martunia quotes MacArthur's... Uh, <clears throat> Dr. John MacArthur, Lordship's most prolific apologist, defines repentance as turning from one's sins. You find this teaching on pages 177 to 180 in the 20th anniversary edition of the Gospel according to Jesus. MacArthur's view of repentance implies that the lost man must come to Christ for salvation with the intention of turning and continuing to strive against sin throughout his lifetime. That's very subtle, folks. Listen, when I came to Christ and got saved, I wanted Jesus. Right? <clears throat> Listen, and, and, and there came a point when I wanted change. But you know what? My salvation was not based upon the fact that when I asked Jesus to save me, I was committing in my heart that I was going to change. That wasn't any part of it. I was a sinner going to hell. I needed Jesus, and I cried out to him, and he saved me. And after that, he began to work in me and to change me. Um, in a Trinity Broadcasting Network, network inter interview, John MacArthur was asked, what must take place before a lost man can become a Christian after he understands his sin, guilt before God, and need to be forgiven? He replied, add to that the fact that I, the lost man, am so crushed, disturbed, broken, battered. I am so humiliated by that condition. I am so helpless to change it myself that all I can do is cry out to God. And in that cry, I am not only saying that I want to be delivered from the person that I am, but I want to turn to righteousness. This is about turning from sin to Christ and then, of course, believing that the facts of the gospel is the way uh, all, <clears throat> all of that actually becomes a divine miracle and transaction. Now listen, look, <clears throat> understand, I was not um, <clears throat> crushed, disturbed, broken, or battered. You may have been. <clears throat> That's not the issue. Right? That's not part of it. That's not part of repentance. Repentance is the change of mind. Yeah, I am wrong. <clears throat> I am wrong. I got it wrong. And I need Jesus. That's it. It, it really is as simple as that. Um, <clears throat> Paul Washer says this. 3,000 kids came forward. Uh, <clears throat> it was just a bunch of kids doing what they'd been trained to do ever since they were in Sunday school. No tears, no repentance, no broken hearts, no weeping over sin, no self-hatred. Did you hate yourself when you got saved? Listen, my life was going okay. <laughs> Things were all right. I, I didn't hate myself at all. I just realized I was a sinner and I needed Jesus. And that's, that, that's all I needed. Uh, no realization of offenses against God. Nothing, a move of God. I think not. Because when God moves, and particularly when God moves to save, there is repentance. Do you know what he was doing? He was looking at this group of kids because, nobody, kids because nobody was crying. He was saying, listen, there's not repentance there. Now, I don't know the situation he's talking about. I don't know what was really going on. I don't know what I've been preaching or, or what happened. But you know what? The evidence he's looking for is not biblical evidence. There doesn't need to be that. Listen, <clears throat> I've heard so many people questioning whether they really repented or not. Yet for some of you, you were too young to remember the actual thought process that went behind you getting saved. But listen, if you have a three-year-old or a four-year-old that comes to, uh, comes to their mommy and, and, and listen, they've done something bad and they feel awful about doing, doing something bad, right? 
I mean, you ever seen a three-year-old where they really feel crushed by something they've done? And so they, they feel bad, and they come to mom, and, you know, and mom talks to them about the, about the sin and talks to them about God and talks to them about salvation, and the child realizes, I am a sinner. And they turn to Jesus Christ as their Savior. You know what happens? They get saved. And they don't need to get saved again when they're 16, just to be sure. They got saved. They don't need to remember back to exactly the thought process. No, they, they, they got saved. They believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and they got saved. You know, we need to be careful that we're not constantly digging up the roots. Because if we dig up the roots enough, you know what? The plants are not going to do very well. And we've got a lot of plants that are not doing very well. And part of the problem is the roots have been dug up enough times so that, listen, they're not settled in their faith at all. Listen, repentance is simply a change of mind. I was a sinner. Um, <clears throat> Uh, the forgiveness that is, is in Jesus Christ is conditional upon repentance. Toward, this is, um, <clears throat> we're looking again at uh, Ray Comfort, right? The forgiveness that is in Jesus Christ is conditional upon repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it is a gift that God offers to everyone, but individuals must receive it by repenting and trusting in Christ or they will remain dead in their sins. No one has biblical grounds to continue in sin assuming that they are safe just because Jesus died on the cross. Now again, listen, you hear that and you say, well, you know what, that, that's, that's, that sounds good. I don't want to presumptuously presume that I'm safe because Jesus died on the cross, but you know what, I'm safe because Jesus died yeah, on the cross. <laughs> and even if I'm doing wrong, I'm safe because Jesus died on the cross. Amen. Because that's what saved me, not what I'm doing. <clears throat> you know, this is my, my earliest spiritual memory. I, I, I'm, I'm about six or seven years old at this stage. Right? I'm in school, uh, I know, but I, I, I don't remember much of it, but it's one of my earliest memories, actually. Right? <clears throat> I remember coming down to my mother uh, in the night in floods of tears because I didn't want to go to hell. I don't remember where I got it from. They had probably said something about it in school, but I did not want to go to hell. And my Catholic mother told me what any good Catholic mother would tell you. She said to me, well, if you're good, you won't go to hell. And I remember going back up to bed, totally crushed, because I knew I couldn't be good. I just knew I couldn't do it. I knew there was no way out of this thing. You know, listen, that was no comfort to me because I couldn't be good. You know what? <clears throat> it's Jesus that was good. It's Jesus that saves it's what he did on the cross, and that only that saves somebody. And we need to get it clear in our hearts. Listen, this is serious stuff. This is not something that you can afford to fudge, pastors. This is not something that you can afford to let ride in your church. This is something you need to confront. This is something you need to get on the right side of, and you need to be sure of in your heart, and you need to stay on the right side of it. Um, <clears throat> to add one's commitment to live righteously to the transaction of salvation is to confuse the simplicity that is in Christ. Christ is the only one who saves, and he does all the saving. That's John Van Gelder from, uh, from his book. He does all the saving. Um, what does the Bible say? Um, now, we don't have time to look at all those verses. I'm run, rapidly running out of time here. But you know what the Bible says? It's by faith, and by faith alone. Again, and again, and again. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. The Bible says it's by faith. That's over and over and over again. It's not by anything we do or can do. You know, in the gospel accounts, in the, you know, when, when Paul is preaching the gospel, he's not telling them what they have to do after they save. He's telling them how to get saved. The Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? 
believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved on all thy household. And he believed and was baptized. Listen, it's by believing. Now, understand that salvation is as simple as simple can be. It really is. Look, I appreciate the netcasters. The, the, the principal reason I appreciate netcasters is because it's a theologically sound articulation of the gospel. That's really what, it, listen, it articulates the gospel in a theologically sound way. But do you know, somebody does not need a 45-minute presentation of the uh, netcasters in order to get saved. They need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's what we need, and that's what we need to get back to you. Listen, you're going to go out of here fired up with the gospel. And the enemy will talk to you on the way home and say, yeah, but which gospel? <clears throat> How are you going to do it? He, he, he will come to you and he, and he will ask you, listen, are you going to just teach them to believe or are you going to teach them what they need to do after they get saved? You go, and you know what? He can get you so confused about it that you'll do nothing for all the fire that you've got in you. That by the end of the week, listen, you'll have settled back down into the place. Listen, the gospel is easy. It's simple. We need to take it back. Um, <clears throat> Let me read these quotes because these, <clears throat> these are um, uh, <clears throat> Harry Ironsides, right? Uh, <clears throat> he says, The gospel is not a call to repentance or to amendment of our ways to make restitution for past sins or to promise to do better in the future. These things are proper in their place, but they do not constitute the gospel. For the gospel is not good advice to be obeyed. It is good news to be believed. And I say, Amen. That is, it is good news to be believed. Uh, look underneath there. Uh, repentance is the recognition of my sinnership. That's what it is. Repentance is when I recognize uh, that I'm a sinner. Uh, on the next page there, page 126, when anyone comes promising salvation to those who make a full surrender of what they ha all they, uh, that they have to God and who pay the price of full salvation, he is preaching another gospel. For the price was paid on Calvary's cross and the work that saves is finished. It was Christ Jesus who made the full surrender when he yielded his life to Calvary. Uh, that saves us, not our surrender in any way to him. It was his surrender, not ours. <clears throat> um, Fred Moritz writes, repentance is a change of mind. That is a momentous change. The lost person changes his mind about his sin, his rebellion against God, and his relationship to God. Paul taught the elders of the church of Ephesus that repentance is directed towards God. He says that his message in Ephesus was testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance is the change of mind that produces faith in Christ. It is as if the lost person says, God is right, I am wrong. It's understanding who I am. The other side of the coin is that when the lost person recognizes his own sinfulness, he is ready to trust Christ as the only Savior. Listen, that's it. Repentance is as simple as that. Um, <clears throat> no one questions that there must be a sincere change of mind, a turning from uh, self to the Savior, but lordship advocates at, at, um, <clears throat> attempting to make behavior and fruit essential ingredients of rather than evidence of saving faith, Scripture teaches that the Savior saves the ungodly uh, in their sins and believers from their sins. Um, this guy, uh, Ron Shea, says, I'm just going to read you one little part, part of the quote here, right? Um, towards the end. Just there from the bottom of the page, up from the bottom of the page. Um, he calls it a bilateral contract salvation. It's a promise for a promise. The lost sinner promises future obedience in exchange 
for God's promise of eternal life. This errant understanding of the term repentance is the most common and pervasive form of lordship salvation taught within Christendom and throughout the world. This completely changes the gospel from a transaction with God at a point in time to a partnership that is, fun, that is a fundamentally different gospel. And listen, that's what it does. And understand that, that if it's a promise for a promise, it's not something that happens at a point in time. It's something that's, pre that's dependent on future performance. That's not the gospel. That's not how somebody gets saved. Um, the quote from John there, um, I, I, I won't read it for time's sake. It's, it's there for you. <clears throat> but then the implication for the gospel <clears throat> to the saved. I mean, what does the gospel mean? Does, we're hearing this week uh, about the gospel to the sinner and the gospel to the saint. Listen, <clears throat> We get saved by trusting Jesus Christ as our Savior. And then we start a pilgrimage, a journey, a walk, a discipleship. We start living for him. And, and what happens is something entirely different begins to go on. Now, look, for some of you, you got saved and you started discipleship immediately. Right? It's almost as though the two things happened at the same time. You know, it almost happened like that as far as my life is concerned. Right? Now, they, they're separate steps. But for many of you, you got saved, and then you started discipleship and started walking with God. And they're two different steps. They're not the same. When you read the Gospels, and you read about discipleship, and you take the requirements for discipleship and put them on salvation, you just blew it. Listen, what person in their right minds, if you come to them and, and, and tell them, well, listen, if you need to get saved, if you really want to get saved, what you need to do is you need to hate yourself, your family, and everything you have. I mean, that's just not there for an unbeliever. As a believer, I know who Jesus is. If he's asking me to give that up, you know what? Listen, he's got something better in mind. I know that now. But, you know, you don't ask an unbeliever to do that. So be careful as you're reading that you don't confuse the two terms, don't confuse the two issues, uh, discipleship uh, and salvation. Uh, <clears throat> one of the key problems, by the way, that you're, Roman numeral 4 there, the difference between salvation and discipleship. One of the key problems with lordship salvation is the confusion of the requirements for salvation and discipleship. A person gets saved when he depends upon the finished work of Calvary. Ernest Pickering, in his review of the original, the gospel according to Jesus, stated, by the way, original, because there's been so many revisions of it uh, since then. Uh, he said, salvation is free. Discipleship is costly. Salvation comes by receiving the work of the cross. Discipleship is evidenced by bearing the cross. Daily submission to the will of God. Christ here is not giving instructions about how to go to heaven, but how those who know they are going to heaven should follow him. Following another quotation from the chapter entitled The Cost of Discipleship in MacArthur's um, The Gospel According to Jesus, Martinique says, let me say again unequivocally that Jesus' summons to deny and self and follow him was an invitation to salvation, not a second step of faith following salvation. Those who are not willing to lose their lives for Christ are not worthy of him. He wants disciples ready to forsake everything. His call for full-scale self-denial, willingness to die for, say, uh, for his sake if necessary. Now, listen, that's what MacArthur is saying you need to commit to to be saved. Listen, that's wrong. That's impossible. <clears throat> that, that, that can't happen. We have to understand the difference between salvation and discipleship. And when we read our New Testament, we have to be able to discern between the two. Because otherwise, you'll get confused. 
Otherwise, you'll speak confusingly. And what will happen is when you speak confusingly, you'll spread confusion. There's a quote there from um, Dr. Flanders. I'll leave you to read that for yourself. Um, but the issue of lordship has huge ramifications for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we are to hold to a true, basic, biblical truth of salvation by grace through faith alone, we must reject it strongly. If we fail to stand against it, aggressive evangelism will be swallowed up in a sea of doubt and questions. Can you see it? That if we don't stand against <clears throat> lordship salvation, what's going to happen is that all our fire for the gospel is going to be put out because there's such uncertainty involved in it. Let me give you three areas where I think it really affects us. <clears throat> First of all, <clears throat> when you go into lordship salvation and you ask somebody to commit to Jesus Christ as their savior and commit to him as their Lord and to follow him, you ask them to do the impossible. Do you understand that when you preach the gospel, rightly they're going to understand their sinnership. Do you understand that? Listen, they're going to understand, I can't. That's what happens. When you preach the gospel, you actually reveal to them who they are. And then you ask them to make a commitment to make Jesus number one and to follow him and do everything he says he tells them to do. Listen, if they are thinking at all, they will say that's impossible. They will say it's impossible. I dealt with somebody recently, a young woman recently, and it absolutely heartbreaking to me. She came, and I went through the gospel. I actually went through Ephesians uh, 2, 8, and 9 with her, uh, and uh, went through the gospel with her. We, we talked about free. We talked about gift. We talked about um, it, it's all of Jesus, not of works. And um, we, we came down to the point of drawing the net, and um, I asked her, would she like to get saved? And she said, I'm not sure I can keep my commitment. And I'm saying, we never talked about commitment. Well, somebody else had talked about commitment to her. Somebody else had talked about her need to make a commitment to follow Jesus Christ uh, and to actually obey him and effectively to make him Lord of her life. And you know what this woman was thinking? She, she really said, she said to me, look, I'm not sure I can do it. I just said to her, it's not about your commitment. It's about his commitment to you. And if you will believe upon him, he will save you. You know what she did? She got it. She got it. She trusted Jesus Christ as her Savior. But somebody had put a stumbling block in the way that almost sent this hungry soul away because she couldn't keep her commitment. That's terrible. Listen, that's criminal. It's worse than criminal. Don't put stumbling blocks in the way of people, and don't let anybody around you do it either. You've got to make a stand against that. Listen, lost people are going to go to hell if we don't make a stand against Lordship Salvation. Secondly, the soul winner <clears throat> becomes self-conscious rather than God-conscious. If the new convert does not pan out, it's a failure on their part to declare the gospel correctly. That is, with sufficient emphasis on the cost of Lordship. The result is that aggressive evangelism leading to salvation becomes rare. The gospel may well be preached, but without the drawing of the net. You know, <clears throat> I can think of one guy, and he is a zealous witness. Uh, he follows Ray Comfort's stuff, uses all Ray Comfort's material. He is a zealous witness, but he never leads anybody to the Lord. And listen, he's out a lot. He's talking to people all the time, but he never leads anybody, leads anybody to, to the Lord. You know what? I think he's afraid to. <clears throat> if I believed what he believed, I would too. Because what he believes is that if he doesn't do it right, it's going to be a false profession that's going to be on his head. Listen, that's rubbish. 
I'm the messenger. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. I deliver the bomb. The bomb explodes and does its own work. <laughs> you know, it's not down to me. We need our soul winners to understand, listen, it's not down to you. You're the messenger. You faithfully take the message. Listen, the Holy Spirit is bringing conviction. He's out there doing He'll faithfully do His job. We, we don't have to worry about Him. The only worry we have is are we doing our job? <clears throat> because He will faithfully do His job. And all we've got to do is deliver the message. Listen, Paul didn't get into, you know, <clears throat> you know, get depressed when he came to Corinth and say, oh, I'm not doing it right. There must be something different I should be doing. And he didn't begin to look at himself. What he did was he looked at these believers that weren't living right and he began to nail their sin. Boom, 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 boom. Like you're bought with a price. Get it right. Glorify God. And you know, we need to understand the gospel is his. And what we need to do is we need to just go out there and deliver it and expect the Holy Spirit to do his work. We need to stop focusing on us and focus upon obedience. He'll do the rest. He'll take it. But you know what? The third is the most damaging aspect of Lordship Salvation. So I believe that the gospel, the glorious gospel, is indeed glorious. And I believe the glory all goes to God as far as the gospel is concerned. And I mean all of the glory. I don't think I'm going to stand before God with any of the glory. I think the gospel is all His. I think through the ages, we, we read in Ephesians chapter 2, through the ages we're going to rehearse the gospel, what He did for us. You know, I think, you know, when you get saved, you really understand very little of the gospel. But you begin to understand how marvelous, how, how, how a God could love you so much that he sent his son to die for you in spite of the fact that you were a sinner and you couldn't care less about him. And, you know, and the more I think about it, and the more I think of what it cost to save me, the more unworthy I feel and the, the more wonderful he is. And I think that's going to go on in eternity. But when you introduce lordship to it. You take from his glory. Nobody is going to stand in heaven and say, yeah, well, you did the saving, but I did the keeping. No one is going to stand before him and take any part of it. Listen, it's touching the ark is what it is. It is wrong. We can't allow it to, to go. Let me leave you with a picture in your mind here. <clears throat> Let's imagine that the gospel is a diamond. And, you know, diamond's got several sides to it. You know, one side is the blood. Isn't it marvelous what the blood did for us? Another side would be the cross and the fact that Jesus died for us. Another side would be the Savior, the Son of God, coming to die. Great is the mystery of godliness that God was made manifest in the flesh. Another side would be John 3.16, the love of God. Another side would be the resurrection. But you know, over all the diamond of the gospel... There's the glory. There's what makes it luster. There's what makes it shine, and that's grace. It's free. It's free. I didn't deserve it. I'll never deserve it. I'll spend eternity remembering I never deserved what he did for me. Lordship salvation attacks the freedom like the gospel comes with. And what it does is it takes from the glory of the gospel. We've got to stand against it. That's about for prayer. Father... We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for saving us. Oh, Lord, we thank you for those in this room, Lord, that know you as their Savior. And, Lord, if there be one today that has been doubting it, blessed Spirit of the living God, would you banish that thought and would you bring them into the place where they begin to grow in faith and they begin to look to you. 
Now, Lord, bless us and bless the rest of our day. And Lord, may your hand rest upon us in Jesus' name. Amen.